So Mark chapter 8, starting right at the beginning in verse 1, is where we will be today. Um, In my opinion, good preaching should not leave you feeling a sense of, wow, I would have never found that in the Bible. In my opinion, really good preaching should leave you with a sense of, wow, how did I not see that in the Bible? It's right there. Right? That's because we all hold the same word in our hand, and so, and so our job is to hopefully just point you to what is right here in front of your face, that if you are reading diligently and you are, and you are really spending time in there, you, indwelt by the same Holy Spirit that we have, would be able to see those same things. So um, the bad news is I am not a very good preacher, uh, but the good news is I, I stand here on behalf of and empowered by a very good God who is entirely capable of taking my feeble attempts at communication and translating it into his glorious song. And so that is what we pray will happen this morning. And, and my hope is as we walk through these, these chapters uh, that you will leave here with a sense of either, obviously, Robbie, why did you just catch up with the rest of us? Or... Clearly, I should have seen that right there the whole time myself. I'm going to pray for us, and then let's, let's dig in. Father, I, I am grateful that you not only send us on your mission, but you do so with the promise that you are with us always. And I can stand here in the confidence right now that it is not my words, how, however eloquent or however feeble and awkward, that have the power to transform. But it is your words and yours alone. So help us to see them, to hear them, give us the ability to understand them. And I pray that you would change us through them. Jesus, we love you. We know that we love you only because you first loved us. And that we could be with you only because you gave yourself for us. So we ask that you would help us to understand that this morning, to trust that, to believe that, and to live in light of that. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And for the sake of your name alone that we gather. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read about three events here. Okay, so we're going to cover 21 verses. There's three events that often uh, I, I, I have heard, actually typically I hear these uh, taught or communicated or studied in, in three different sections. But Mark groups them together for a reason, and, and I think as we read through all of them, we'll see why he does, and, and, and I believe that they're meant to be read together. So here we go, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. In those days, when again... A great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves Do you have? And he said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. 
And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these should also be set out before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And then he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Or do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And all God's people said, In this case, all God's people said, nope, (laughs) sure don't, Jesus, baskets, I'm not tracking. So so here we have feeding, it starts off with feeding of the 4,000, which may sound familiar to you since just a couple chapters ago, we talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. And so... It, it might sound like, oh, this is just a retelling of that other story until you realize there are a few differences in, in these two events. And then when Jesus reminds them, he describes them as two separate events. So clearly this happens twice, which makes it a little peculiar. This time, when Jesus says, hey, we've got thousands of people to feed, let's go ahead and do that. And the disciples respond with, how is this possible, Jesus? How could we ever feed thousands of people with only a few loaves of bread and a couple fish? And inexplicably, Jesus doesn't facepalm and say, how about like we did it a week ago, guys? Remember that? I feel like that would have left more of an impression. But no, they've, they have already forgotten what has happened, and so their response yet again is doubt and confusion. How is this possible? So here we see again, as we talked about last week, that Jesus never makes efforts to call a crowd, to gather a crowd, but that crowds often form around him, and and when they do, he has compassion on them. And so he says he sees these people, they have followed him, and he has compassion on them. And so he, he feeds them miraculously, and, and, and creates bread out of nothing. Er, early on, right before Jesus' ministry started, he was actually tempted to do this very same thing. Satan said, make bread out of nothing, and Jesus says, no. Not because making bread out of nothing is wrong, but doing the right thing at the wrong time makes it the wrong thing. 
So in that context, Jesus says no. In this context, there is a direct need to be addressed, and so Jesus does the very thing that Satan tries to tempt him to do earlier, and he makes bread, essentially, from nothing. And then, I don't know if you noticed, what does he do after everyone is comfortable and well-fed? Sends them away, right? All right, everybody, everybody all full? Excellent. Now scram. Right? Does that seem weird? Again, we, we talked about last week about Jesus not drawing the crowd. You would think after being fed with the miracle bread, that would be the perfect time to say, wasn't that awesome? Now, tell your friends so we can get some more people tomorrow and let's gather up. But no, Jesus meets the need and then says, okay, now run along, go home. And then, and then just to be sure, he jumps in a boat and speeds away. Or rows away, I guess. They're not moving all that fast back then, but they paddles away. Then he reaches the other side of the lake in his constant avoidance of the crowd. It says, and the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation Seek a sign. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So again, we see Jesus constantly running away from the crowd. At one point, literally running across the lake away from the crowd. Constantly getting, getting away. So we have the Pharisees now asking him, Prove, prove to us that you are who you say you are. And Jesus, as he is literally brushing the miracle breadcrumbs from his shirt, says, nope, I'm not going to do it. Why would Jesus who over the last few weeks we have seen has miraculously healed a blind man, a hearing-impaired man with, with a speech impediment, a demon-possessed little girl. He walks on water. He feeds 9,000 people miraculously. Why, why can't he just do one little trick? Just to, just to stick it to the Pharisees, Right? Just to say, you want to do something? Here's something. Transfiguration. Boom. And he explodes into glowing light in front of them and goes all Captain Marvel on them. Right? That would be convincing, right? He starts levitating and lasers are shooting out of his hands and his eyes like Peter and John gets to, gets to see in, in, in just another chapter. Moses and Elijah pop up next to him and be like, it's Jesus. He's the man. I, that would be rather convincing, don't you think? Jesus can, could absolutely do this. Jesus, Jesus could, could unmake them with a thought. He's the only one holding their atoms together as they are saying, prove to us that we should listen to you. Instead, he, he says, no. I'm not going to do that. Why? Why would he not do that? I think the better question is, 
why did the Pharisees not see everything else that he had done up to this point as a sign? They've seen miracle after miracle. The reason they're asking him is because of all of the things that he's teaching that they can't figure out and all the things that he has done that don't fit into their religious category. So he's already done so many things. That's why they're asking him. So why are they unable to see all of those things as a sign? So the problem is they're asking the wrong questions. And then they're asking the questions that they are asking for the wrong reasons. Right? For them to be asking Jesus, prove yourself to us, what does that communicate about what they think about Jesus and what they think about themselves? Right? They are positioning themselves as the judge. Jesus, you have to prove yourself to me. So they assume that they are superior to Jesus and that it's his job to prove himself to them. What we see in Jesus throughout all the Gospels is that Jesus doesn't ever contrive a situation just to make a point. People, people are not arguments to him. They're souls that need to be shepherded. And so he doesn't contrive these circumstances just, just to try to prove a point, even, even about himself, because doing the right thing at the wrong time makes it the wrong thing. And Jesus doesn't ever do the wrong thing. He doesn't do tricks to prove himself. He uses his sovereign power to glorify the Father by demonstrating his compassion for those whom he loves. And his miracles are always in the context of addressing a very real need, a real person with a real need. And that is clearly more his point in doing these things, pointing to the coming kingdom and glorifying the Father by meeting the real needs of real people, not settling theological debates just to prove a point. We see something similar in John 9, and one of my favorite stories, and you can, you can turn there if you want or just, or, uh, or just hang tight. I'm just going to read a few verses. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his apostles, and it says, And as they passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To which the blind man replied, I'm blind, not deaf. I can hear you guys. I'm right here. Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus, Jesus responds, stop talking about this person like he is a theological debate. This is about God's glory and his power, not about rule following and you being the best at answering theological questions. And then he heals him. Says so the real issue is the man is blind. Now watch how good the father is. Open your eyes. And as the people of Jesus, Jesus himself and those who are truly following him, we must always be 
much more concerned about understanding and loving and caring for others at the expense of our own time and resources rather than putting political or theological or, or behavioral principles over demonstrating the gospel. That is who our Jesus was, and he, he calls us to be like him. And rather than the reputation that the American church has developed as being known for what we're against, rather than, than who we are for, let's look to the example of our Jesus. Who in this case, a signs show would have been an offensive distraction from him demonstrating the love of the Father and the authority of the Son. He would have reduced this to a debate about ideas rather than the kingdom of God invading earth to save the souls of those he made in his image. And what we see in, in this instance and also in John 9, if you're familiar with that story, you know what happens right after Jesus heals the blind man. The Pharisees drag him into court and accuse Jesus of sinning because he healed the blind man on the Sabbath. So they're not denying that he did a miraculous sign. They're just saying, oh, you did it wrong. You should have done it according to our rules. So even when they see the sign, they are in no way convinced that he has any authority and that they should submit to him. They just look for reasons why it's wrong. So if he did explode in glory in front of him, they would, they would not be amazed and fall at their knees in submission to him. They would huddle up and start going, is exploding in light a work? Because it's the Sabbath today. Are people allowed to explode with light in God's glory on the Sabbath? and figure out some way to hold that against him because their hearts were hardened. They were unable to see up until this point. And Jesus doing a pyrotechnic show for them was not going to dazzle them into surrender. They were incapable of perceiving his acts as signs, as proof of his deity and his authority. And Jesus knows that. He knows their heart. He knows why they're asking and he knows what they intend to do with that information. And he cannot affirm that because that's a distraction from the glory of God. His main point is God's love for the world supremely revealed in Jesus. That is what he is demonstrating. So then we come to the apostles. Bless their hearts. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, says to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. 
And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to him, seven. And he said to him, do you not yet understand? This, this chapter is an exercise in missing the point. If Jesus was prone to face palms, this day would have been full of them. As everyone he's interacting with is constantly missing the point and not really listening to what he's saying, but hearing just enough to send them off on their own discussion or debate. Both his enemies and those who are closest to him still do not understand him and continue to ask the wrong questions and misinterpret much of what he says. Including me. So this week, as I'm, as I'm reading through this again, I have much of the message already outlined and, and written, and I'm just feeling like, no, God, I just don't want to miss anything in this. And if I, if I truly believe what you say, that is your spirit that enlightens us, it's your spirit that gives us the ability to understand what's in the word, then please help me. Tran- translate this for me. Help me to see what I am not seeing. Help me to see what I am missing. So if we just... If we just pretend that all we have is the Bible and the Holy Spirit, which is what most of the church had for about 2,000 years and managed quite nicely with that, what would we see when we read this? Because as I open commentary after commentary after commentary, what I keep getting is interpretations on what do the 12 baskets mean? And what do the seven baskets mean? What's the significance of that number? And why the baskets? They're significant to the baskets. What were the baskets made out of? We've got to figure out. Because Jesus is saying, do you not understand? So we have got to figure out what these baskets mean. And so as I get sucked into all of that, I'm reading this and just saying, what if I, if I didn't have all that? I was just reading the Bible. What would I see? What would, be, what would I pull out of this? Spirit, help me to see what is in here. Because what I see is Jesus telling them, why, why are you guys talking about bread? Jesus, will you help me understand what the bread is all about? What you're saying here is, why are you talking about bread? Oh, why am I still talking about bread? 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the bread. That Jesus says, stop talking about bread. What is wrong with us, people? Why do we do this? Why do we not learn from our own mistakes? I have read this passage so many times. I have heard it preached so many times. I have read so many commentaries on this. And and I completely understand and appreciate if I am the only one in the room that has finally come to this realization. I am okay with that. I'm just glad I'm finally here. But Jesus is talking to the apostles saying, why, why are you talking about bread? I am trying to unlock the secrets to the kingdom of heaven to you, and you are arguing about lunch. I am giving you wisdom directly from God that will transform everything about who you are and life on earth from this point on, and you are arguing about a sandwich. 
stop talking about the bread. Because what, what does he say? You're worried about bread? How many people did we feed? 9,000? And how much bread was left over after feeding all those people? How many baskets of leftovers were? Do you not think I can provide bread? Can I not handle bread? How many baskets of leftovers did I need to make for you to trust? I've got the bread handled. They're so distracted. Jesus is trying to give them life and light. And they're so focused on the need that is right there, the desire that is right at their feet, they're completely missing it. They're not listening to what he's saying. Right? Not unlike the flight attendant that everybody ignores while they're trying to explain how to get out of the plane alive. Right? For anybody who's been in a plane, what do we do as soon as they start that routine? Oh my goodness, just let me get back to my book or my movie or my staring at the seat in front of me because I'd rather do that than listen to this routine again. I've been in a car before. I understand how to work a seatbelt. Lift the handle on the buckle and the belt will release, right? We all understand how this works. This poor flight attendant is just trying to help us stay alive. And I don't have time for your nonsense. We are so annoyed by it that the airline companies have discovered this and realized, okay, so not dying evidently is not enough motivation for them to pay attention to us. So, we know they love TV. So let's just make entertaining videos about it and, and they'll have to watch it because if you turn a screen on in front of them, then they're compelled and then we'll trick them into learning how to not suffocate if cabin pressure drops. That's their best shot at getting me to pay attention. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we think this person who's literally trying to help me stay alive is totally wasting my time? Because I know what is better use of my time, right? Because I am the judge of all things that are right and good for me. Right? Like the Pharisee, I assume I am the judge and I determine what is valuable. This works out in so many aspects of our life, right? Everybody's boss is a bumbling fool who has no right to be in that position, right? Who knows how this clown managed to get in this role because they're the worst. Right? It's, always, it's always our spouse's fault. If they would just change this, then this would all be fine. Right? All of those politicians are dum-dums. None of them have any idea what they're doing. Obviously, this is the best way to do this thing. Fill in the blank. This person is wasting my TV time right now with their life-saving information. God, if you are so loving, why don't you prove it by doing this for me right now? All of those things are symptoms of us believing the hilarious deception that we are the judge of all that is good and right. And this heart makes it impossible for us to see 
and even if we do see it, to believe all that God is constantly doing all around us. We'll explain it away, or we'll say that really wasn't actually the best thing. That wasn't even good. Or like the disciples, we become so distracted worrying about what is right at our feet that we're unable to lift our eyes and see the glory and the beauty and all that is happening all around us. So distracted, I get so distracted by the very things that Jesus said not to worry about, that he had handled, that that I'm not able, there's no room in my head and there's no room in my heart to believe and trust and have faith in the one who holds it all together. Both of those positions are ultimately doubt in Jesus. The Pharisees are doubting Jesus. The apostles are doubting Jesus for different reasons and different motivations, and it looks different externally, but it's the same fundamental problem of they just don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So what is Jesus actually trying to tell the disciples in here? As he's trying to say, stop worrying about the bread. I've got that handled. I have demonstrated to you that I can provide not just what is enough, but in excess and abundance. Because the Father loves generously. So I've established that. I'm trying to point you to something so much bigger than that. And so what is he actually wanting us to focus on here? Watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware the leaven of the religious leaders and the political leaders. Beware Leaven is often used as a symbol in Scripture of of something evil. Jesus uses it a lot. The the New Testament writers use it a lot because, uh, and and what I always understood about that and what what is true is because uh, a a little tiny bit of it kneaded into the dough works its way and and it permeates the whole lump of dough, right? And so we, we, our our typical go-to is the understanding of, you know, a little bit of evil, you know, works its way through and, 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 and infects everything, right? Which is, which is true and it's often used in that context. But something that stood out to me this time that I never really realized exactly how brilliant this illustration is. Because as Jesus is saying, beware, beware the teachings of the Pharisees, beware the teaching of the culture around you. Leaven not only works its way through the whole dough, but most of us don't know this because we don't live in a culture anymore where we're all making bread every day in our home. Some of us do, but that's mostly for fun, not out of absolute necessity. Um, But for those of you who don't know, what leaven does is it goes into the dough, and that's the thing that makes the dough rise. It causes a a chemical reaction in there, and it it produces gases that that pop it up, which is awesome because that's what makes the bread light and fluffy, and it gives it all those delicious bubbles, and, 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 and then you enjoy all of its glutinous glory. That is, that is what leaven does. And what struck me, what is so brilliant about this is Jesus says, beware this teaching that works its way through the whole dough and puffs it up and fills it with what? 
Hot air. Exactly. It's full of gas. That's all, that's all it is. It changes the dough, sure. And it makes it bigger, which is always more impressive, right? It's more, it, it has more of a show. Like it, gets, it gets awesome. Like, and if you've ever actually made bread, it actually is kind of dazzling when you, you, you go to bed and it's like this big and you come out, it's like the size of a basketball. And you're like, whoa, it's kind of magical. But, but all that's happening there is it's, it's filling with gas. It's filling with air. It adds no actual substance. It just puffs it full of gas. Jesus is comparing the teaching of the hyper-religious and the surrounding culture to gas. It adds no substance while it puffs it up. It looks impressive, but there is no weight to it. In Colossians, Paul warns us, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, but not according to Christ. Paul, to the Colossians, warns them against pursuing empty knowledge that puffs up rather than love which builds up. In the same letter, Paul says, for Jews demand signs, which we see here, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is weighty. That is substance. often fall victim to the same struggle as the disciples and the Pharisees, so distracted that we miss the point of what Jesus is saying. And we can even look at ourselves or look at others and be convinced there must be substance because look how big that is. Look how impressive that is and realize if it is not ultimately built on the foundation of Christ and driven by Christ and fueled by Christ, it is air. There is no substance to it, and it is dangerous, and we can become deceived and distracted by it. So will we be a people who choose to listen intently and to trust completely and to obey courageously? We see our Jesus saying in the Word, not be people who seek to be great at theological debate but who are not marked by active, self-sacrificial love, without which, Paul says, all of our theological brilliance is just irritating noise. We choose to be people who listen to ourselves and surround ourselves with people who just agree with us, not realizing that we are mostly puffing ourselves up, looking impressive, but with no real substance or will we be a people who pursue Jesus and trust that he is who he says he is to remember all that he has done and trust that he will continue to do and be. We can fall into the traps so easily, usually not even realize that we are. And I can understand every biblical stance on ethics and marriage and family 
But if I am not loving my wife the way Jesus loved his church, the way I'm commanded to in Ephesians, the way Jesus loved his church is by setting aside all that was due to him and his own preferences and serving his bride to the point of death, then Scripture says I'm worse than an unbeliever. Because my failure to love my wife the way Scripture commands me to do so to the glory of God distorts the gospel that I proclaim. I don't want to be puffed up full of the air of ideas and principles and lack the substance of clinging to Christ and allowing Him to obey through me. Or can I fall into the other trap of being so influenced by culture that I, that I, that I live in that I, that I no longer even notice the unhealthy and the unbiblical aspects of it? And the yeast of my culture has, has puffed my faith full of air and, and so it floats in whatever direction that wind blows rather than being firmly anchored in the heavy truth of our Jesus and his gospel. We need to help one another to remember, church. We need to remember who is in the boat with us. Jesus is saying, do you, see, do you still not understand who's with you right now? I knit the universe together with a word. I've got this. Listen to me. Remember, church, who is in the boat with you. Remember not that you were once hungry, but how God provided and you are sitting here right now because of his glorious provision. Right? The disciples are missing the fact that Jesus, they remember, oh man, we were, we were hungry and we're hungry now and then we're hungry again. They, they're hungry a lot, it seems. They remember about all the times that they're hungry, but then they forget the fact that each one of those times, Jesus miraculously met that need. Remember that part. Don't remember that you were hungry. Remember that your God provided and you are sitting here right now because of his glorious provision. Remember, church, that he, not you, is the judge and be thankful for that. Be thankful for that glorious fact because his judgment is true and it is perfect and it is right and it is just and it is merciful and it is abounding in steadfast love. It is such good news that he is the judge and you and I are not. Remember, church, that his words are light and life. They are they are light in the sense of illumination, but they are heavy in terms of substance and weight and power and truth. Remember that the living word of God is the sure and steady anchor for our souls. Jesus, please help us to remember. Please help us in the midst of our distracted hearts that that are so prone to judgment or apathy. 
And it's so easy to simply forget who you are and get so distracted by either our own sense of rightness or our worry over our immediate needs. Father, you know that. You are not surprised by that. You know, you know our hearts. And not just our hearts in general, but you know me and my heart. You know the heart and head of every person in this room. You know why they are distracted. You know why they fear. We pray, Spirit, that you would help us. Jesus, you would help us by reminding us who you are, that you are with us, that you are for us. Help us to live in that confidence day in and day out. And now, Spirit, help us to worship our Jesus in spirit and in truth.